Hey, Howard Jacobson here. Welcome to today's Plant Yourself podcast. A quick reminder, this podcast is free for everyone and supported by patrons. So if you would like to find out about becoming a patron of the show and helping us out, helping defray the cost, helping to spread the message, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. Thanks so much and enjoy today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of Plant Yourself, Well Start Health and Sick to Fit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a strong and sensuous life. So today's guest is the star of the Game Changers movie. And I think you know who I'm talking about. It wasn't any of the athletes. It wasn't the famous movie stars or bodybuilders or directors. It was Aaron Spitz, the urologist who stole the show and the three college athletes that he worked with stole the show with their erection study. And in our conversation, we get the background, the backstory of that study, which is not what I thought it would be. And we talk about his book, The Penis Book, and his mission to help men become aware of penis health and to help them enjoy the benefits of a healthy, strong, virile penis. And the people in their lives with whom they share it can also benefit. So before we get to the conversation, let's get some business out of the way. First of all, if you are interested in going on a health retreat, a sick to fit retreat with me and Josh Lajani, next one is in North Carolina, June 4th through 7th. You can find that at sicktofit.com. Just look for the retreats link, and this one should be up near the top. Second of all, if you would like to make 2020 the year that you finally turn things around from the inside out, consider hiring me as your health coach. I will not have any availability until April. So if you're interested, if you want to get on that waiting list, email me, hj at plantyourself.com, because there's nothing to sign up for now. And we can talk about it and figure out if that would be a good fit. Finally, a reminder that this podcast is free for those who can't afford it and paid for by those who can. So if you can and you'd like to support the mission of the show, you can do so at patreon.com. Just search for Plant Yourself and Bob's Your Uncle. All right, let's get to today's conversation. Without further ado, Dr. Aaron Spitz, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm I'm excited. I'm a little nervous to have this conversation. Oh, okay. This, uh, so so first thing I want to say is you, you you wrote this book, the penis book, which I just finished, and it's really funny. Well, thank you. And it's funny on purpose, unlike lots of books. <laughs> right. That's true. And and it was a delight to read. And it also made me a little bit uncomfortable. And so I wanted to start by just asking you, what what's what was your purpose in putting in jokes, puns in, you know, in, in, in taking that tone? Well, I think that when you're talking about something medical or technical, it can be dry. Uh, it can be. Um, you know, tedious sometimes if you don't really understand, uh, you know, how complex the information is. And so making it interesting keeps, I think, the reader engaged and humor is interesting. Also, when you're talking about a topic that's uncomfortable, uh, that has some taboos around it, um, or that makes people feel self-conscious, 
throwing in some humor lightens it up, kind of breaks the ice, as they say. And the way I kind of look at it is a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And this is medicine. This is uh, information that's helpful for guy's health. Uh, and it can be uncomfortable for a guy to think about, talk about, read about. And so putting in that humor helps get that message in and helps the reader feel more comfortable, I think. Mm. Do you have a sense whether most of your readers are, are men or women? I would say the majority are men. Okay. Yes, but I'm, I'm happily surprised at how many women also read the book uh, and, uh, and then tell others to read the book, too. So it, it does... Mm. It definitely uh, is read by both sexes, although it is written in a voice primarily towards a male reader. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, and so is, is this sort of your um, your clinical style also to, to help men feel at ease? In... I would say that my clinical style is a little more formal than mm -hmm. the book. The book is sort of if my patient and I had a three day weekend together. Uh -huh. and, and we had established a you know friendly relationship. What would that conversation be like idealized? Uh, so uh, the, the new patient who's walking in the door who has never met me before, I'm going to encounter with a little less levity, primarily because it's important for me to make sure I'm getting the information and the assessment correctly and for them to understand that I take their condition seriously. So... This is mm -hmm. once we're past that point, we have a three day weekend together and I tell you everything mm -hmm. I could possibly tell you about your penis. Great. So what what um, inspired you to write the book? Well, I have been on television many times speaking about these kinds of topics, uh, particularly on a show called The Doctors, uh, which mm -hmm. was previously on CBS and in that show, I often would need to speak uh, very concisely to get a lot of information across in a short period of time, given that it was on television. And I had cultivated a style of communicating that incorporated some humor. And so because I had so frequently talked about this topic in a way that was uh, easy to receive and, um, and I thought very helpful to a lot of people, uh, I had thought about writing a book over the years, and then um, the circumstances converged to where I was able to finally sit down and do that. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm imagining you you sensed a a gap in the in the the market. Well, certainly, um, I didn't want to write a book that was already out there, um, and you know there are certainly a, a number of books out there about sexuality and and uh and issues with sexuality but there's not really a book that covers all the topics related to the penis written by a urologist uh, there are books written by journalists who interview doctors about this or that aspect of male sexuality but this was more of a almost a textbook slash user's manual and written by a urologist as opposed to a journalist with the depth of expertise and, um, and the extent of, of coverage of the topic that did not exist. Um, so what, um, one of the things that really struck me is 
you know, you're basically like I would say two thirds of the book is dispelling myths of one of one sort or another. And if point like there's there's so many opportunities for men to get things wrong about this most intimate part of our bodies because we don't have comparisons and the comparisons <clears throat> that we tend to make or, you know, the, the visual comparisons that we can see is either, you know, like a glance in the locker room at someone's dangle, as you say, um, mm -hmm. or more and more commonly porn. Mm -hmm. And right. like like when you, you wrote that, you know, everybody knows that like you watch LeBron James play basketball and, you know, he's essentially a freak of nature in his physical endowments and and then build skill upon that. But we also know because we, we see pickup basketball that not everyone is like that and we don't have to be like that to be worthy. But in bed, if we're comparing ourselves to the only other performers we see, which is porn stars with nine inch phalluses, then we can feel broken. And so like a, a lot of men came to you for uh, penile enhancement surgery because they were comparing themselves to um, to porn stars. When, when did you start noticing that? Well, I think that this is something that men recognize uh, either in themselves or others, well, even outside of being a medical professional. I think men are um, often wondering about the size of their penis or have heard conversation about it. I became aware of it more uh, I would say formally uh, as a urologist when I had patients started to come to me asking about penile enlargement surgery or I had people I knew asking me if that was really a thing and uh, they were asking it with more than just a hint of um, casual curiosity um, and so uh, it's often the case even men who don't come to me seeking for penile enhancement surgery because you know many many men don't actually seek it but when I examine them, they'll often make a offhanded comment about how small they are or, you know, sorry, uh, pretty small down there, that kind of a thing when they're completely normal, mm. completely normal. But they themselves obviously think of themselves as being small to the point that they need to apologetically comment about it. And they feel that they need to apologetically comment about it when they're totally normal, but they don't know because as you said, uh, they don't really have a point of comparison, but, you know, they are the 10th or 20th penis I've looked at that day. <laughs> so, you know, I have I have a much uh, more objective uh, notion. Uh, and um, and it is the case that many men feel that they are small and many men do see most of the other penises that they see uh, through pornography. Yeah, I mean, you know, so like, in talking to women, most women I know are not happy with their bodies to some, you know, to some degree. And men, I, I find typically don't we don't have that overt discussion about, oh, my thighs are too big or something like that. But we <laughs> right. don't talk about our penises. And I think, you know, like I'm I don't even know, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm reluctant to like talk about myself in this way, you know, like if, you know, if you were an elbow doctor, we would be having really interesting conversations about, uh, you know, my femur, um, rather my, my patella, you know, um, 
what's the one what's the, <laughs> humorous right <laughs> thank you um right but um i'm imagining that that a lot of men and from reading your book getting a sense of it um have that sort of you know i don't know if it's dysmorphia or just a negative relationship with the penis which which feels very um synecticky like like this is you know, if, if I'm not happy with my penis, there's a, there's a way in which I'm not happy with myself. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that, I, well, I know that I see that sort of sense of relief uh, when people read the book, particularly older men who read the book, very frequently say the same thing to me. And that is, I wish I had read this book when I was younger. Mm. Um. There's so much that I didn't realize. And I don't think they're talking about, you know, the uh, the genetics of uh, HPV virus. I think they're talking about how normal and okay they are mm -hmm. and have in all these years. And the sort of, um, you know, mythology that, they, that they've been living under, which made them feel less than happy about their penis and kind of... Uh, steals you know steals some satisfaction you could have had over many many years and, and so yeah i hear this uh time and again i wish i'd read this when i was younger young guys should read this uh this is a great book for for people starting out <laughs> so, <laughs> younger end of the spectrum uh, but you're right um there there is this dissatisfaction with the penis that not all men have certainly there are many men who are very happy and satisfied and well adjusted but but so many men uh do have some degree of this and even if it's not you know, all the way to the end of the spectrum where you have dysmorphia, which is an actual, you know, medical condition, kind of like anorexia. Um, but, uh, but even if you are um, a little bit annoyed or a little bit uh, uh, despondent about it, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't have to be uh, um, any despondent uh, if, if everything, in fact, is okay. Right. And, and, you know, another thing you pointed out in the book that I, I kind of knew but never really thought about is like, you know, the Game of Thrones effect. Right. Like how many breasts and buttocks and vulvas we see in, you know, R rated movies or, or you know, R rated TV. And we simply don't see penises. This is true. Um, and I think that this is why perhaps there's a difference between women and men's um, willingness to talk about their own body parts, because if. Um, a female body part is constantly being displayed, uh, then it's a lot more likely that uh, we're going to feel comfortable talking about them and comparing them. Uh, uh, but uh, the penis not being displayed very often, uh, I think, kind of uh, keeps it as an unspoken topic, not for discussion. Uh, uh. And so I think that's why perhaps women talk about their bodies more and perhaps unfortunately are made to feel more inadequate about their bodies. And although men don't talk about their penises very much, uh, perhaps they would feel even more inadequate about their penises if penises were highlighted the same way that, that uh, breasts and buttocks and women were highlighted. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I do remember reading that um, the character of Hodor um, was wearing a, uh, a fake penis, right? like a prosthetic like, like, like the, you know, there's something like in the actors, you're like, I don't want to show my real one. So we're just going to, you know, make a paper mache model or something. So I can stick it on 
Um, so, right. so, you know, even there, I mean, it's, 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 it's fascinating because when I think of Hollywood, I think of, you know, what sells is like this overt over the top masculinity from, from cars and, and car chases and explosions and guns and epic sure. violence. And yet sort of the, 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 the central metaphor of maleness is, is missing. Well, uh, you know, it's bigger is better uh, in Hollywood, right? Uh, I think, you know, look at, I grew up in the era of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. And, <laughs> you know, the bigger was better, big muscles, uh, big, big guns, big cars. Uh, you know, he drove a Hummer. Uh, this was kind of, you know, the, the mindset. Um, and I think that it takes a long time for these kinds of uh, of images and standards to change, but it probably does change generationally. And I think that um, we see that the the images and models of fitness um, are changing even now before our very eyes, such as with um, movies like The Game Changers and how fitness and and uh, is is portrayed there. And I think more and more we're starting to see that the aesthetic is shifting from from bigger is better to just simply fitter is better. It doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. have to be a size thing. And when you start to get away from the size thing with regards to just you know, the muscles of somebody's body, maybe also subconsciously, you can shift away from the size thing of, you know, the size of one's penis. Hard to say, but um, indeed there is uh, these uh, these cultural uh, norms that, uh, for better or for worse, influence the way we view ourselves. But we ourselves are are not responsible for the size of ourselves. We you know we can't make <laughs> our hands bigger or our feet bigger or our penis bigger. But we should be grateful that we have hands and feet and penis as a function. Uh, <laughs> that they were that we were born with them and, and that they're normal, uh, rather than than get so focused on. How do we make them bigger or smaller? Right, right. I, I learned a lesson uh, about gratitude from my father, who was a lot older than me. I was he was 47 when I was born. And in his late 60s, he would tell me, like, never take for granted the fact that you can piss like a horse. Because, like, <laughs> you know, he had prostate problems. He ended up developing prostate cancer. And, and like, you know, he'd, sit, he'd stand in front of the toilet and, like, you know, for 10 minutes. And he'd say, man, what you can do right now, never take that for granted. And I've, I've taken his advice. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I am very grateful for so many um, aspects of my physical health that I wouldn't be if I wasn't a doctor because I see so many examples of when those things don't work, that if I had to experience them all myself to witness them, uh, I would be miserable. But my job is helping other people with things that aren't working right. And even if it's not in my specialty, I'll be aware of what else is not working right in their bodies because I'm referred by somebody else who's taking care of that other body part. So it's pretty hard for the for the person who's not in the medical profession to be aware of just how many things really can go wrong and therefore just how grateful uh, <laughs> they might be about all the things that are going right all the time in their body. And even for people that have things going wrong, there's so many other things that can be going wrong too. <laughs> so I, as a, as a medical professional, am very grateful about all the normal things. 
um, just as your father was grateful about um, what used to be normal now that he was experiencing a problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's sort of the obverse of what I hear happens to a lot of medical students, which is they start to, you know, feel like they have all the diseases that they're reading about. Sure. I think that's that's a common thing that we go through is, oh, my God, what if that happened to me? Uh, do I have that? Uh, and then, uh, you know, that 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 quickly fades away. I had my experience with that as well, where I, I was certain I had testicular cancer and I was certain I was going to die and and never be a father, and, and on and on and on. It was a long week between when I thought I had testis cancer and when I had my normal ultrasound. Uh, and, uh, and back then, we didn't have the internet, but I did have access to the medical library, and I went down to the basement and spent many hours needlessly, you know, scaring <laughs> myself down there. But, um, yeah, yeah, that, that is a common thing. Right. And, you know, what I, what I was noticing when I was going through the book is, you know, I think it's inevitable that our brains go to, gee, do I have that? And I like there was a couple of things like around fatigue, like I can feel fatigue sometimes. And when I thought, oh, gee, maybe it's low testosterone, partly I was relieved and partly I, I felt like a little bit of shame. <laughs> like, oh, I don't I don't want that to be the reason I don't want to be a low testosterone male. Right, right. You're right. Uh, there is stigma still with conditions that we can't control. Um, so, you know, one of the important things is to recognize when you are in fact normal and not think you're abnormal when you're not. But the other thing that's important is to not stigmatize a condition you may have that you need to have treatment for. It's not your fault. Uh, it doesn't make you inferior. It's just that your body happens to require treatment for a condition. Um, just as your eyes may require corrective lenses to see better. Um, or, um, your body may not make insulin, say if you're a type one diabetic, uh, and you require insulin to live properly or to live at all. Um, many men's bodies, uh, their testicles, uh, stop making as much testosterone as is ideal. Uh, this is often, uh, age related, but in other cases it can be due to other conditions and it's not a point of shame. It's not something they control. You can't will yourself to make more or less testosterone. You can't, uh, unless you're obese, work out harder to make your yourself produce more testosterone. This is not something that you know your muscles are making. Uh, and so since it's not really in your conscious control, if you have a condition where you have low testosterone, um, there's really no point in being ashamed of it. And there's no point in hiding it because the treatment is very straightforward. And a lot of men really do require testosterone. It is common. But on the other hand, it can also be um, abused. That is to say, it can be overprescribed or over requested. Um, it can be uh, a situation where fatigue can be the result of a variety of things, uh, not just low testosterone. There's many reasons a person can feel fatigued and have normal testosterone. So it's important that it is um, evaluated properly that it is demonstrated to really be the case on blood testing. But I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's unfortunately sort of a point of, uh, you know, masculinity and, 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 and shame if you're one of those guys who needs testosterone for some men. But for other men, fortunately, it is not. And they feel very, very good and robust 
when they go from low testosterone to normal testosterone in those cases where it's where it is in fact necessary. Yeah. Wait. So are are you saying that I shouldn't buy those supplements that the guy at the gym told me to get? <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, it, it's interesting with oral supplements. There are a couple of nutritional supplements, uh, natural supplements, Chrysin and Tribulus, that may boost testosterone in some men, but they are um, not reliably reproducible in their effects, you know, from one man to another. I tried them for a while in my practice on my patients who had low testosterone. Ultimately, I wasn't very satisfied with, with how well they performed at treating my men who needed treatment and kind of delayed their treatment in some cases. But for some men, those supplements do seem to increase testosterone. But in many cases, testosterone supplements are spiked with actual testosterone. And that's why they work, quote unquote work. Um, But oral testosterone is dangerous to the liver or can be dangerous to the liver. So even if a person says, well, hey, man, if it's got testosterone in it, why not? If it's working, it's working. It's a dangerous way to take testosterone. And you don't want to have hidden levels of uh, actual testosterone in your your capsules that you're taking. Testosterone should be given as an injection or through the skin. And I've had patients show up who were infertile uh, and they had zero sperm and their pituitary function was suppressed. The pituitary is in the brain and it send signals to stimulate your testicles and it was suppressed they had no sperm and they were just taking an over-the-counter supplement that the guy at the gym told them about and it was spiked with testosterone or some other steroid like testosterone and it shut down their natural production fortunately these are reversible cases in most cases but uh, i would be very very careful about testosterone boosting supplements Mm, right um so a lot of the book is about sexual performance, right? So there's certainly things about, you know, about just gener- general health and well-being, but a lot but a lot of it's focused on performance, like the first chapter is about erections. Um, so what do, you, what do you see as a urologist in terms of uh, what men complain about, what they think is causing it, and, and like the gap between, you know, what they would do if left to their own devices and what science says about how to help? Well, I see a lot of men who have a complaint about erectile dysfunction, not being able to get erections as often or at all, or not being able to maintain them once they get them. And many of my men are at an age where the underlying cause is poor circulation due to age and other medical conditions like heart disease or diabetes. And In many of these cases, probably most of these cases, men don't put those two things together. They don't put their overall medical condition together with their erectile function. They're on a variety of other medications for heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and they don't really recognize that this is also why they have erectile dysfunction. And instead, uh, they think that it is psychological. Mm. Um, And so they, uh, in a way, beat themselves up because they think that this is something that they have some sort of control over, even if it's subconscious, that it's sort of, um, you know, just a, a choice almost, if you will. Yeah. Well, it's, all, it's almost like Tony Soprano going to therapy. It's like shocking. Like the men, sh- men shouldn't need to get their, their head straight. Right. And so, um, so men who are not 
<clears throat> recognizing that there's this physical cost that, you know, they can't will to be better, but they could potentially get better. There are many cases where you can reverse erectile function, uh, dysfunction um, due to, you know, poor blood flow by reversing your circulatory health, if you will. Um, but uh, so, so they come in um, really with this misconception of where the problem lies. Uh, and they are often either themselves worried or their, or their partners are worried that if they take the pill, like Viagra, for example, Cialis, that it could be harmful to their health. There is still a holdover of, of anxiety or fear about harm from these pills. And these pills are absolutely safe unless a person is on nitroglycerin for a very, very bad heart condition. But most men who I see are not on nitroglycerin. And, and when you're not on nitroglycerin, these pills are really very safe. They don't hurt your heart. They don't give you a heart attack. They don't give you a heart problem. But men come in uh, with either they or their partners um, uh, unwilling or very dubious about getting treatment. And then they think that the, the problem they have is, is psychological. So it's sort of a two-hit problem. Hmm. Yeah. So it's almost like, um, you know, these things work so well, it must be some sort of Mephistophelian bargain, right? Like you're going to have to pay the price. Well, you know, not exactly. I, I think that perhaps that is at play. But but, you know, it used to be when when Viagra first came out, there was some very high profile news stories about hmm. people dying of, you know, sudden deaths. And it was the nitroglycerin cases. And I think it's more the fear hmm. of the um, of, of, of the, these sort of big headline stories. But it's interesting you raise this issue of, you know, these pills work like magic, there must be some price to pay. In fact, there's an opposite situation that um, a lot of men kind of silently suffer with, and that is when the pills don't work, then it's even more devastating. Mm. Uh, because if you look at the marketing, uh, and you look at the, the media, these pills ought to work. They ought to work on everybody. It seems they do, um, but they don't. And in about uh, 35% of patients, these pills are not effective. And so um, you can imagine if you uh, had to overcome some sort of a psychological hurdle to get in to see the doctor about your erection problem, and then you finally take these pills and they don't work, wow, you know, where does that leave you? Um, you? You know, men may feel like, wow, I must be really bad, you know. I'm, I'm the worst, uh, and, and it's hopeless. But fortunately, um, as a urologist, I have other therapies that can be effective even when the pills aren't, which I go into in the book as well, you know, what to do when the pills don't work, um, which is really important uh, for men to realize that the pills don't work on everybody, but it's not the end of the line if that is the case. Because a lot of men may self-medicate with these pills. It's a lot easier now to get access to these pills uh, with online websites and online services. And if you get access to the pills and they don't work and you're really not sure where to go because you don't have a relationship with a doctor, then you could be in a, in a really difficult place. Mm. I find myself suddenly curious about the clinical trials for these pills to find out, like, what was the, the placebo effect like how many people took uh, sugar pills and, and ended up with three-hour erections anyway? Right. Well, placebo effect is a real thing uh, in medicine across the spectrum. It's, it's really remarkable how powerful our mind is to cause real physical changes in our body. And certainly 
erection issues do have psychological components to them. Um, but uh, for many men, the physical component, the blood flow component, um, is so much more profound that uh, with or without a psychological effect, it's at play. But in these clinical trials, there are certainly, in any clinical trial for, for sexual dysfunction, there will be men whose blend of psychological and physical is such that if the psychological gets improved, it's actually enough uh, to, to allow for, for better erections. And um, there is a way to test for psychological effect, and that's with this device called a Rigiscan, which monitors one's erections while they're asleep. So our body naturally makes erections while we are asleep, if it can. And that is something that our psychology really can't play into. We can't really control our dreams, let's say. Mm. And the erections happen despite our dreams. These are not sexual dreams causing erections. We, we are just having erections while we're in REM sleep. It's a natural body function. And so in studies of medications for erections in clinical trials, some of them will incorporate Rigiscan studies to, um, to validate the effects. Now, some of those studies are done awake, and that can be a psychological factor. But when you're studying somebody while they're asleep, you at least are ruling out the effects of the big head over the little head. Right. Um, so I, I want to, uh, yeah, it's a good segue into the game changers and to the, you know, the idea of nutrition. But before we go there, I would love for you to share your, um, your soapbox on pornography. Because I was re I was really shocked reading mm. the effects, the negative effects of watching porn, or at a, you know at a certain number of times per week at a sort of, some sort of threshold, and also yeah. at like I was I was reading it and thinking like I wouldn't buy like knowingly buy underwear made in a sweatshop, and it's like pornography industry is like this sweatshop, mm -hmm. right? So pornography. Uh, turns out can have some devastating effects on sexual function, which seems counterintuitive because we think of pornography as being sexually exciting and uh, perhaps getting us in the mood and, and getting us you know, more sexual. Uh, but what happens is these images actually suppress brain centers that are important for normal erections, the ability to reach a sexual climax, uh, desire and it blunts them down um, why exactly that happens may not be fully worked out but I think of it sort of as a, a sensory overload um, or, or a sensory misdirection and actual brain centers that are in charge of these various sexual functions shrink on MRI studies they physically shrink so it's not a psychological reaction to uh, to what you're looking at it's actually a biological anatomical reaction. It's pretty scary to think about. It's pretty amazing that something you look at can have a physical impact on centers in your brain and your biochemistry, but that in fact is the case. And so guys who watch pornography frequently, and that's typically several times a week or daily, uh, experience this suppression in their ability to get erections and in their ability to reach a climax and it becomes uh, a very frustrating and, um, and uh, basically the exact opposite of what you're looking for when you're seeking out pornography. And in order to, to reach sexual climax, 
to, to have an erection even, uh, men are finding themselves having to look at more and more intense imagery that often is um, repulsive to them uh, because uh, in order for it to be intense, it has to take a twist or a turn here and get into weird and bizarre uh, fetishes or um, scenarios that, that they actually themselves find repulsive but are requiring. And it's a, it's a really uh, terrible situation to find oneself in. And it makes sex with a, an actual real human being uh, difficult uh, and makes those relationships, those intimate relationships difficult. And it's a very destructive thing. And so, so many young people are looking at porn, young men, boys, uh, even uh, adolescents, pre-adolescents are looking at porn because it is so ubiquitously available. And as a result, we're starting to see young men with erection problems at a rate that we never saw before. It was usually rare that a young guy would have an erection problem. Now it's, it's becoming increasingly common, and it's not because these men have some new vascular problem uh, that they didn't have before. It's not because of environmental toxins or something like that. It's because of this uh, visual imagery, this visual toxin, if you will. And yes, as you pointed out, the uh, people who uh, participate in the pornography uh, videos, the, the actors, uh, if you will, um, are often, um, you know, making uh, really a paltry sum of money uh, working in difficult conditions and they themselves uh, experiencing these effects on their own uh, relationships and sexuality and can find themselves really in this sort of downward spiral financially because they become less and less desirable um, because pornography is so much centered around novelty. You know, what's the next fresh face? Uh, what's the next person? And you can stop when you're watching pornography and, and, and click on the next video and the next video and the next video. So uh, it's not like Hollywood where people look for the same star and want to see more and more of this, this sort of cult of personality. There is no real personality employed in these hardcore scenes. And so it's really about, you know, who's, who's the next kid on the block? Let's go, let's go, next, next, next. And these people find themselves having to resort to, you know, escort services. And, um, and really, it's, a, it's not a glamorous life for these people. It's not a lucrative life for the majority of these people. Um, and it's doing a disservice to the viewer. So it's pretty much a lose-lose. Mm. Is there anything, is there any such thing as good porn, which, you know, like cuddle porn or, or, you know, sexual, you know, sexual video imagery that can bring things back or can, can actually create, um, you know, can be educational and, you know, yeah. and lift the spirits? I would imagine uh, that there, that there may well be. Um, as a urologist, I don't, really um, function or work as a sex uh, therapist or a behavioral medicine therapist. Mm. Uh, but I do refer many patients to behavioral therapists for sexual function. And there may well be something like that, but um, I would uh, venture to guess that it's not going to be uh, pornography in the way we're used to seeing it. Um, and uh, it's likely not to be, you know, um, 
many different ones that you can watch uh, rapidly in sequence. The problem with pornography, one of the problems with pornography is just there's so much on demand all the time. I mean, it's the most downloaded thing on the Internet. And uh, it's um, I think that, that, that this nature of just mass consumption is, is part of the problem. When you have real sex with somebody, uh, you know, it takes a while for that to even happen in your relationship. And then it takes a while for it to happen in real life uh, when you're actually having sex to get to that point. And then what happens afterwards and porn, it's just hardcore scene after hardcore scene after hardcore scene, you know, literally in the palm of your hand. It's a very bizarre, bizarre kind of um, reality time frame. Yeah. Well, it reminds me very much of junk food, right? Fractionated. All the all the fiber and water is removed. You can have it instantly. And once you've had a Snickers bar, who wants an apple? That is a great analogy. I think that's a, a really excellent analogy. And the sugar, uh, so easily accessible in that Snickers bar, is driving brain centers and altering your biochemistry as well. And uh, a very, very similar thing is happening with this easy access, hardcore pornography. Right. So let's let's uh, make that shift with the Ridges scan and the, and the Snickers bar. So the first thing I'm curious about is, you know, you you write about a, essentially a plant based diet and you, you know, you soft pedal a little, a little bit for the masses. Say you don't have to give up your meat, but let's just go for like 90 percent. Um, how did you get there? Because, you know, I was just I just interviewed Michael Greger and he talked about like the M.D., is a an anti-credential for talking about nutrition. Um, I don't think most people go to their urologists and find out that they're one of the causes of their ED might be vascular and related to their diet. Where, where did you encounter this and what made you start to take it seriously? Well, I became much more aware about nutritional effects on uh, urology. Um, and really on prostate cancer initially as a result of a patient uh, and a neighbor. Um, I had uh, both a patient and a neighbor, neighbor simultaneously recommend the China study book to me. And I thought that was interesting that I would hear from two different people <clears throat> at the same time, uh, hmm. you know, perhaps I should look into this. Excuse me. So I ordered the book. Um, but I never read it. And then a year later, the same patient recommended it to me, came in and his PSA level for his prostate had dropped uh, by about 50%. And I assumed he may have been taking a medication called finasteride, also known as Propecia, um, which can help with hair loss, but also shrinks your prostate, makes your PSA go down. But in fact, he wasn't. He said, no, no, doc, it's, you know, I'm, I'm eating vegan. It's uh, that book, The China Study. Did you read it? And I said, well, you know, I did order it. <laughs> so he, uh, he ran down to his car and he brought, me, brought it up to me on CD because he had it on CD. And I just happened to have a very long family trip that weekend. And I listened to the whole thing there and back in the car with my family. And I was really surprised at the information. And the information presented in it, um, you know, was presented in a, a way in which I could receive it. There was some, you know, sort of scientific rigor to it. The author, uh, Dr. Campbell, was an alumni of my alma mater, Cornell. Uh, I knew we had a great nutritional science department there. His credibility, all these things converged to really make me take uh, a closer listen. And then I had the advantage of having access to 
um, medical journals online as part of my affiliation with the university. And so I did my own due diligence on it. I looked up his articles and I read them to see if he was really representing them correctly. And then I became aware of a whole bunch more literature, peer-reviewed literature, that really wasn't around when I was coming to medical school, much more recent. And so I started to take a deep dive and I was really, really amazed at what I discovered. And one of the things I discovered was Dean Ornish's study at UC San Francisco Medical Center, along with one of my mentors who I had actually trained under. <clears throat> and they were looking at the effects of a vegan diet and meditation on patients with prostate cancer and how it slowed down that progression. And this was all new information for me. Um, and what ended up happening next was one of my patients was a friend and he was a doctor and he had a very strong family history of prostate cancer and his PSA kept going up and we had to keep rebiopsying him because it kept looking like he was getting prostate cancer. We could never find it, but there was always some abnormality, but it wasn't actually cancer. And he ended up going up to UC San Francisco for very specialized, extensive biopsy protocol. And it was really frustrating. And this guy was in his forties. It was, you know, it was very devastating. And I said, hey, man, I just read this book. Uh, they, I did some research. It looks like there, there's an effective diet on prostate cancer. Um, I don't have prostate cancer. You're at high risk. I don't want to keep biopsying you. Why don't we try this together? We'll both go vegan together, and then we'll see what happens with your PSA. I'm going to do it because I'm compelled by what I'm reading, and you know, you could be compelled by not having another prostate biopsy. So we did that. We did that together. That's how we started it out. Just an experiment, oh. too. About, and about what, when was this? What? What year was this, roughly? It was probably about uh, 10 years ago now, maybe over yeah. 10 years ago. And, um, and he, uh, fortunately, had an amazing response. And after six months, his PSA blood test dropped by 50%. And it has remained normal ever since, and he hasn't had another prostate biopsy. Now, I was fortunate because, you know, not everybody responds the same way to every intervention. And I could have uh, just as easily found that he had no effect, and I could have been perhaps, you know, dissuaded. But because I saw that, I had buy-in plus the science I was reading. And then I started recommending it to my patients. And I started to see these kinds of effects. Now, not on everybody, but on many. Uh, declines in PSAs, even a shrinkage in actual cancer on a CAT scan in one of my patients. Uh, but I tell all my patients, um, this may or may not help you, but I guarantee you it won't hurt you. And when my patients go on on um, a plant-based diet, um, they do report back other benefits in their health that's, that's not necessarily in my field as urology. Um, I think that... Uh, urologists and doctors do recognize the importance of diet and health, but um, they don't necessarily have that deep dive uh, into it that makes them as compelled as I did. And it just happened to be this nice confluence of, of influences uh, that led me to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, most doctors have um, sort of a whole range of information that they're trying to master, you know, from pharmacology to physiology, uh, surgery, et cetera. And this is, you know, one of those aspects that we, that we try to get our, our, our brains around. And we would benefit from a deeper dive into this. And I think uh, more and more doctors are starting to become keyed into that. But, but it is something that we could do better for sure. Mm, what a beautiful story. Um, which brings me to the Game Changers. So... <laughs> You're the star of the Game Changers. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, those everyone I've talked to, 
Like that, your scenes are the ones that people yeah. are walking away with their jaws dropping. If people love that scene and it's those three athletes who are the stars because, <laughs> you know, it's, they really are, you know, what makes that scene so interesting and compelling is, mm. you know, the humanity and the honesty and the vulnerability of these three guys. Uh, and, and what they let us do. <laughs> right. And so for, for the three people out there who haven't uh, seen the movie yet, um, can you describe like what's, what, how did that, the idea come about and what, like what, what, what were like behind the scenes? Yeah, it's actually the scene that almost didn't happen. Um, it, it barely, it, it's, it's quite amazing that it happened at all. In fact, <clears throat> because, um, uh, the producer approached me, um, several years ago, uh, when he was first starting to make the film and let me know that he was going to be making a documentary and he knew that I was a doctor that espoused plant-based, uh, diet and he'd like to come and speak to me and interview me. And so he did, uh, and he interviewed me for the film eventually. Uh, and it was a, it was a great conversation kind of like we're having now, um, and a couple hours of, 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 uh, of recordings. And then he went off, uh, and, uh, taped and interviewed many other people and a couple of years later circled back around to me uh, and they had just uh, finished all of their, all their filming and they had an idea that they'd come back for me for one last, one last aspect of their film. And that was, was there a way beyond all the discussion and conversation we've had about how nutrition and, and plant-based diet helps, you know, uh, male health, was there a way we could demonstrate this? Was there, was there a visual demonstration of this? Because they had just filmed this scene with the Miami Dolphins where they had shown how the blood got cloudy after mm -hmm. a meat-based meal versus a plant-based meal. And it was a very impactful visual demonstration. Was there something like that with male sexual function that we could do? And I said, no, <laughs> I, 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 there's nothing I can think of that we that, that is like that, um, uh, because um, in my mind, uh, male sexual function, um, the health of the male uh, of erections, say the healthy erections versus um, you know poor erections, was a, a gradual process to go from healthy to unhealthy. Um, erectile dysfunction was disease of typically older guys. It took time for that to happen and to think that I could come up with a visual demonstration of a single meal effect uh, on erections, uh, the way that you could show a single meal effect on the cloudiness of your blood. Um, I just didn't think it was possible. And, <laughs> and, 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 and uh, James Wilkes said, well, um, what about the RigiScan device? And, and he is a very intelligent man, and he really has read, uh, you know, an incredible amount of, of medical literature. And for him to bring this up, you know, much respect. <laughs> and I said, well, James, you know, that device um, measures uh, erections while you're asleep. Um, but, you know, it's not a, a super sensitive device. It's not measuring uh, molecular reactions it's it's not measuring, um, you know, actual flow through tiny blood vessels. And if you're going to try to see an effect of a single meal on an erection, you're you're trying to look at something that's, you know, a very subtle change, um, you know, perhaps down at the molecular level or at the level of tiny blood vessels and something like a rigid scan, which is measuring just, you know, is it hard or not and how long is it hard for 
I think is 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 far too rough of an instrument to be able to pick up that kind of effect if it's even measurable. If it's even measurable, okay. So that was my concept going in, and I said uh, we can't do it. <laughs> sent him away. I literally sent him away and said I said here here's this other guy I can think of who's even smarter than me. Uh, go talk to him. If he has some idea, you know, help you. And James came back to me uh, a couple of months later. He was like, you know, Aaron, I, you know, I haven't gotten anywhere. Um, what do you think? <laughs> I said, yeah, you know, it just can't be done. And he said, well, will, will you will you try it? <laughs> and I said, I said, well, um, you know, given all the caveats I've given you and how how strongly I think it's not going to work. Uh, you know, if you're willing to spend the time and energy on that, sure, I'll give it a try. <laughs> and so uh, from there, I embarked on a mission to um, uh, acquire some of these devices because um, they're not really in use in clinical practice so much. They're more for uh, clinical studies. Mm-hmm. Um, rounded up some devices uh, that were uh, generously donated by uh, Tom Hopper, who is the, the hemispheric represent, uh, rep for these devices in the world. And... Um, uh, we did some trials. We we got some uh, some of James' uh, students, uh, martial arts students, and we did sort of a a, a a rough trial of it. And in some cases, the the devices malfunctioned, or in other cases, the person like took it off, you know, did, didn't like it. And and we ended up with like a data point that was interesting and, and suggested that there's an effect, but it wasn't the kind of thing that. Um, was compelling by any means. And so I was discouraged and I thought, well, it's, you know, it doesn't look like there's much here. Well, we got very close then to when the film had to be submitted for the Sundance Film Festival. And it just was playing on my mind. And finally I, I thought, you know what? Um, it wasn't a good experiment to see if it would work or not. We still don't know. And um, if we don't do it, we'll never do it. Uh, and so I called up James from, I was on vacation in Florida and I live in California and I called up James in the middle of my vacation. And I said, James, you know what, if you are able to mobilize your film crew and you're willing to spend the time and money on this, um, I'm willing to go for it, uh, before, before the deadline, before it has mm-hmm. to be in the can, which was in about less than 30 days. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, absolutely. And I got back from work three days later and there was a film crew at my office. So what did, you, what did you think? What did you think had to be done differently to have a, a true experiment? Well, uh, I just didn't think that this that that this effect could be profound enough to to see an impact from one meal. I just I just didn't think that that the penis was that sensitive or our bodies worked like that. Okay, because mm-hmm. um, we think of erection functions being you know gradually deteriorating blood vessels over time. Uh, so in order for this to work or to demonstrate anything, what I thought was, okay, if we're going to find an effect, we need to have somebody whose penis is very, very healthy so that the tissue um, will respond as much as possible to a meal, to the chemicals in the meal, to the nutrients in the meal. Because if a person is old and, and their blood vessels are fibrotic and they have a very weak erection, you know, uh, even Viagra is not going to work in, in, in some cases like that. Why would a meal? But if a person is very young and healthy <clears throat> and they take a Viagra, you know, they can get an erection that lasts too long. 
So I needed young, healthy penises, but old enough to consent. <laughs> so what we arrived at was college athletes. You know, these are young men who are very fit, very healthy. They're not doing drugs. You know, they're not drinking and partying. They're really focused on their fitness and their health because they have to. Uh, and they're young. And so that's why we selected young college athletes for this study, because if it was going to show something, they would be the best people for it to work on. And so when I got back, we had three elite college athletes ready to go. We did the experiment. We did it Monday and Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, I got the results. And I got the results when I was between surgeries. And when I saw the results, it blew my mind. I could not believe it. The, the difference was was really, really obvious. It wasn't subtle. It wasn't a statistical difference. It was a, it was a real obvious difference. And I sent the results to this guy who was smarter than me, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, he took a look at them and he said, yeah, clearly there's an effect here. And I said, look, I'm going to go on camera and I've got to talk about this. And what I say is going to be scrutinized and I need to talk about this properly. And we agreed that there was clearly an effect that was seen in this experiment, but this is not a clinical trial. It's not a randomized clinical trial. And so it's, it doesn't have the weight of that, but it clearly has a very strong signal and it's very exciting. And, and from this, a clinical trial is being launched. So there is a clinical trial that, that, that will be uh, underway pretty soon. It's going to be taking place out of New York, out of Montefiore uh, Medical Center. And we'll be looking at uh, a similar design to what was done in the movie uh, with, some additional, with some additional information and, and testing. Um, but um, the experiment completely surprised me. I, 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 and, and what the experiment showed <clears throat> was these uh, three young, healthy men having normal erections after eating uh, an animal-based meal, but then having even more normal erections, three, four times more normal erections after having a plant-based meal. And so what this scene is not saying is that a plant-based meal will cure your erectile dysfunction. But what we're saying is that a lifetime of plant-based meals may allow you to sustain your erectile function better than a lifetime of animal-based meals. Right. It's the actual, it's the actual supersize me. <laughs> there you go. Right. And That's so great. when you, um, you did the reveal with the athletes who are sitting there who are kind of nervous, how, like for how long had you known these results? Um, a few hours, <laughs> a few hours. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, the drama in there. Yeah. I, I mean, the real drama for me more so than what you saw on camera was, when I'm sitting in between surgical cases in my scrubs, getting the, the data, um, you know, downloading the data off my email, going, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> because I was expecting to see nothing mm. and I was expecting it to be a bust. Uh, and then here we are. Yeah. Fabulous. Now I got to go watch that scene again. <laughs> um, anything else you wish I'd asked that I haven't? Um. No, I, I think that um, you know your questions were, were right on target. Um, I'm, I'm really glad that you highlight how um, men often you know don't talk about these things because um, you know they're uncomfortable, they're embarrassing. But really, um, there is uh, there is help to be had if you need it, and there is reassurance 
to be had um, if you are, you know, inordinately uh, stressed or or depressed about something that's really normal and healthy. And so I appreciate how you um, are highlighting that and and helping, you know, your viewers uh, attain uh, health and satisfaction. I think it's great. Awesome. Thanks. So the book is The Penis Book by Aaron Spitz, MD. And do you have like a social media presence that people want to follow you or? Um, yes, I uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and uh, uh, Aaron Spitz, MD dot com. OK, and I'll put links to all that in the show notes for this episode. Um, yeah. Um, it's early in the morning where you are. I appreciate you getting up and taking the time for this. And I so appreciate everything you're doing to uh, to to help men and the people who love them. Thank you very much. Um, hold on one second. I just want to check one thing. OK, sure. Hold on one second. Trying to get my, I want to verify my website for you because okay, uh, <laughs> Doctor Aaron Spitz, I got Aaron Spitz MD. It's so weird. Um, let's see. You would think it would come up right away because I. So AaronSpitzMD.com. That's right. Okay. Okay. I will, I will put a link and people can go find that and find out more, more about your work. And uh, I encourage everyone to read the book. It's a, it's a gift that you've given to the world. And uh, so many, many thanks. Well, it's, it's really my pleasure. And many thanks to you for um, helping me get the word out. Thank All you. Right. All right. Be well. Okay. Take care. All right, this is going to be a short outro without all the usual stuff because I am batching these. I'm uh, off on some travels, and so I'm getting them all done this week. So I don't know what my running or garden news will be, except there probably won't be any because I won't be home for a little while. So I'll just say, if you enjoyed this podcast, the ways to give back are to pass it forward, let other people know about it, write a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you want to support the show financially, become a patron over at patreon.com. All right, that's it for today. I'll see you back here on Friday for another one of the Friday Fertilizers. And as always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gillis, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carol, Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, 
Christina, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, at Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Len, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parang Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, and Michael Lushton for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.